Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, boy, today's guest, uh, I, I'm super excited about. I know, I know you all know I say that every time. Well, we bring on really super exciting guests all the time. Well, today's guest has some double excitement for me. First, right now, he's currently at the Ohio State University, which you all know is near to, dear to my heart as a Buckeye. Uh, but more importantly than that is Mr. Angus Fletcher, who, by the way, has like the coolest name ever. You, you need to either be like a rock guitarist or a middle linebacker. I mean, it just fits so many things. Uh, you wouldn't guess, though, with a name like that, he is actually the professor of story science at Ohio State's Project Narrative. And for those of you who know, this Ohio State is one of the leading academic think tanks for the study of this work. And we're going to get into what does that even mean, story science? He spent his life, really his life's work, looking at neuroscience, neurobiology, neurophysiology through the lens of narrative. He's gone back, probably the only person on the planet who's gone back into the Renaissance periods and beyond, looking at why those were great communicators through narrative. And he's, over the time, over his course of his career, has really built an expertise in understanding this story science. He's going to explain what that means to us. He's currently there at Ohio State. He works with a lot of big-name companies as well, helping them think through this and how this works and what it means and why the brain's different than a computer and how that, how narrative affects all that. So, Angus, uh, it's our privilege to welcome you to the Driving Change podcast. I'm hugely excited to be here, Jeff. Now, um, I warned you, obviously, I warned everybody in the pre-show, we want to know, you know, five-year-old Angus, back when you were a complete divergent thinker, before the world conforms you into convergent thinking, uh, tell us a little bit about your early days and then what led you up to the point where you just became obsessed with this idea of basically creating an entirely new category of being a story scientist. So when I was a five-year-old, I did what most five-year-olds did, which is I lived in stories. I My imagination was alive. I was just telling myself stories all the time about things that I could do and I could be and imaginary futures that uh, I wished I could walk through. And of course, I just read a lot of books, um, a lot of kind of adventure books, heroic books, things like that. And, you know, as you get older, you get told, well, you know, you got to get a job. You got to be serious. Um, I come from an immigrant family. My family immigrated here. That's why I have this wacky name. Uh, I was actually born overseas in, uh, in the north of England. And, you know, like many immigrant families, my family was like, you got to go into science. And so I ended up in neuroscience, studying the brain, um, spent many years in the neurophysiology lab, kind of figuring out how neurons talk to one another. But I just always had this passion for stories. And I always wanted to understand how they worked. And, you know, I looked around and I saw that um, most of where science was going was away from stories. You know, it was going into data and computation and all these things that we know are very powerful, but don't necessarily touch the heart and move the mind. And meanwhile, a lot of the work on science, uh, on story was not really very scientific. It was based a lot on intuition or myth and things like that. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I could fill in a few pieces of the puzzle by putting the neuroscience and the story together. So who was your biggest influencers like early, early in life or as you go, went up through you know, high school, college, like who influenced you? Did you have like a family of storytellers? Like what was it that really upset, made you obsess about this idea? Was it just you in, intrinsically were drawn to it or was it the environment you grew up in? 
Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, there's no one in my family who is a storyteller. And um, I actually spent just an enormous amount of my childhood uh, reading the Hardy Boys or, you know, um, reading The Lord of the Rings or reading books like that. And it was those stories that kind of convinced me that the human brain has this potential to make other worlds. I was also very fascinated as a child with science fiction. Uh, I love the idea that the human brain could just invent totally new technologies that we could fly, we could do all those kinds of things. And so I guess you could say that a lot of my early mentors were actually stories. And those stories made me want to kind of tell my own original story. And I've kind of gone on a path that's not only different from my parents, but honestly different from anyone else really that I know. I mean, no one before me was a professor of story science. I'm the first person to be that. I got Ohio State to kind of give me the title. Um, and, you know, kind of the thing that I always like to tell people is that your story is your own story. And even though we all need help, we all need mentors, we all need guides, at the end of the day, your narrative is yours to write, and don't be afraid to make it totally original. So let's do it in two parts, then. Let's talk first around the research and some of the science um, of the internal, like what you learned about the brain from a psychological standpoint relative to the intuitive, imaginative part of our creation of our own stories. And then maybe part two will say, then what does that mean when you're an external communicator, and how do you affect others in the ability to be a creative, imaginative communicator through story. So let's start first internally. What have you learned about how the brain works and processes internal information in that narrative based on the imagination and where does it reside in the brain? And what were some surprises you learned along the way about the brain? So, I mean, the biggest surprise I learned along the way is that the human brain works differently from a computer and is smarter than a computer. And when I was coming up, I was always told that stories were a way of sense-making, and that the brain was a kind of sense-making organ that took in data and then organized it into narratives or something like that. And actually, the brain is very different from that. Uh, the brain, down to the level of the synapse, and I don't know how technical we want to get here, but basically the synapse is the thing that really distinguishes the human brain from a computer because the synapse is non-electronic. And there's, uh, there's a kind of power in that non-electronic connection that, that computers can't imitate. But basically, um, the human brain evolved to initiate action. You can think of the brain really less as a brain than as a muscle. And its job is to come up with new action scripts for your arms and your legs to do. And when you chain together links of actions, those are stories. And so over time, the brain started creating stories, which created possibilities for movement and action in the world. And then as the brain became more conscious and sentient, it began to be able to shape those stories and began to be able to say, hey, here's a plan or a plot or a strategy. And here's where I came from. And here's where I'm going to. And here's the cause of that effect. And that means that I can now cause that next effect. So the brain is this enormous action processor. And action is different from data. Data is frozen in time. It exists in math and statistics. Uh, action is something that exists in a kind of different ontological realm. And the brain evolved to be good at doing that. And so if there's one thing I could say to people, you're a natural story thinker. Computers are not. You will always be smarter than computers because you can think in action. Computers never can. And the main output of action is to plan, to plot, to strategize, and to imagine new courses of action that no one else has ever tried before. And that's really the root of innovation. So, so let me ask you this then. Um, the brain is still, I believe, even today, subconsciously hardwired for self-preservation. And I think back in through human history, the earlier narratives we probably were creating and telling ourselves, because I think, is, is it is it pictorializing 
uh, risk aversion, self-preservation? Was it pictorializing early days in the mind of just survival? Um, and then as we've gotten to feel safer and safer in our environment, then we've got to be more imaginative for what could be created. Was there, do you, you sense there was a, an evolution in that? So yes and no. So so certainly before humans, uh, almost entirely the original function of, of, of narrative would be to kind of um, either go away from threats or go towards food or something like that. So if right. you go to very, very ancient brains. But there's this big thing, which I'm sure you've heard of in the brain called the default mode network, um, which is this thing that turns on anytime you're not doing anything. It's a huge part of the brain. And that part of the brain is just to kind of make up stuff. And that means that all the way back in our evolutionary past, our ancestors had time to imagine. We've, we've had that time for hundreds of thousands, if not tens of millions of years. Um, and so, you know, um, the, 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 kind of, the kind of interesting thing there is that really the way that the brain evolved is to notice changes in the environment. Your brain is very, very sensitive to anytime anything new or different happens. And the reason for that is anything new or different, anything new or different is an emergent threat or opportunity. So basically it's saying, oh my goodness, everything I've done now could just fall apart because there's some weird new intrusion in my environment. Or, oh my goodness, there's a new opportunity. And if I can be there first, I can exploit and leverage that. And so really positive imagination comes from noticing different things that are emergent opportunities and being faster to tell a story about them than anyone else. And this is the real difference between the human brain and a computer. Computers can predict the future as a version of the past. Human brains can make new futures that have never existed in the past. And we do that by identifying one or two significant pieces of information and then leveraging them into original stories. And then we tell those stories to other people and we inspire other people to go with us on journeys that they've never gone on before. And voila, you have a new company or a new country or a new anything. Isn't that amazing? I just, and I love that comparing it to the computer and its limitations because it's basing it off of only what it can can analyze from the past, whereas the brain is not built just for that. In fact, it's built for more the other way, right? For the imaginative creation. Um, and I, I love that. I believe that with all my heart that, you know, you, I, regardless of your faith, I believe there was some intelligent design. We were created by a creator to be creative. And that's part of how the brain works, right? It's a creative process. It's just, it's just there. It's part that's of our right. DNA. Well, see, this is what you and I believe on the most fundamental level is that human life is creative. And we come from a creative act, right? We come from a kind of genesis and it's our job to kind of push forward that genesis and computers are amazingly powerful tools for an analyzing what is now. But if you want to make something unprecedented, if you want to make something that only the imagination can see, you need a human brain. And this is something that humans know intuitively. Um, and if you see computers make art, it's always very bad. <laughs> and, and, and this is even despite the fact that computers can look at millions more pieces of art than we can. If you have something like a GPT-3 or something like that, it can read all of Shakespeare, but it can't create Shakespeare, you know. Um, and so that power to create, that power of genesis, that's the story power of the human mind to tell that story, to create that action that has never been done, at least on Earth before. So let's go a little deeper into that personal narrative, the internal narrative then, because I think one of the things that holds most human beings back from their potential is the story they tell themselves. And that story they tell themselves can, you know, it can be from, I call it junk in the brain trunk, right? We all have different degrees of junk in the brain trunk from our backgrounds and trauma and experiences. And then we, you're going to tell yourself a story every day you're awake, right? Every moment, you're, every waking moment, your brain is telling your, yourself a story about something. Why do you think that some people 
have this gear to where they're telling themselves this amazing future story. And, and it's not a manifestation thing. It's a, they're creating their future in the way they're telling themselves what's possible. And then the brain is designed to go help deliver on that versus so many others who keep telling themselves a story every day of what's, it's like the Daniel Kahneman, you know, the prospect theory, right? We, we move at twice the urgency to avoid a loss and to pursue a gain. Well, probably 90% of the population wants to wake up and tell themselves what's not good and what they should avoid versus what's possible. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, first of all, you just answered your own question in a sense that I think most people are playing not to lose as opposed to win. Um, and the main reason for this is just evolutionarily, fear is very, very strong in our brain. As you said earlier, self-preservation is our first instinct. But as you also pointed out earlier, we have created a society where our fear instinct is too strong. The world is actually much safer than our brain thinks because our brain is actually older than our world. And so that's why if you can't find a parking space, you start panicking. You're like, oh, my goodness, I can't find a parking space. You know, if you're like five minutes late for something, you start to like stress out like some other world's going to come to an end because your primordial brain is telling you you're going to die. It's the same thing with money. You know, all of a sudden, if you spend too much money, you start feeling your heart rate elevate, you know, like somehow you're going to die. And what you actually have to do is you have to shift that thinking. And you have to get yourself out of that fear response by telling yourself a different story. And so I work a lot with Martin Seligman and, and, and his team. And one of the things that he really focuses on is, is how you get into a kind of an optimate, excuse me, an optimism space. And, you know, optimism is all about just constantly reminding your brain, this could work, this could work, this could work, this could work, as opposed to this couldn't work, this couldn't work, this couldn't work, this couldn't work. And also, as different from this will work, if your brain is always saying to itself, this will work, Life is hard. Most of the things you think will work won't. And then what will happen is your brain will get demoralized. But if you get up every morning saying this can work, you are investing faith in yourself and in life. And, you know, faith is different from certainty or pessimism. And so basically just getting your brain in that kind of that faith space where it's always saying what's possible could be. It's a simple story to tell yourself, but it will help you just, as you said, actualize all those great ideas you already have in your head. Well, let's pause there for a second because that was really, really powerful. So I think some people misinterpret the idea of the optimism piece of saying, well, I've got to tell myself this will work. And what you're saying is if you tell yourself this will work, the minute you're up against any moment of resistance on the journey to will, your brain's going to go, see, this wasn't going to ever work. And then you're now you're back into the negative narrative. But if you say this could work or this can work, you're anticipating you're going to have to modify things along the way and, and be a little more agile but you're still on the pursuit of it working. That's such a different mindset, I think, for people. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, you just articulated it better than I could. And that's right. I mean, that's the difference between optimism and magical thinking. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people out there who think that magical thinking or the secret or something like that is, is the secret to success. And when I talk to people who actually have very kind of low confidence in themselves, a lot of them are magical thinkers. And it's because, you know, they think, oh, this is going to work. And then when it doesn't work, they think, oh, either life is against me or I did something wrong or all these kinds of things. But if you're a resilient thinker, a resilient thinker is always thinking this could happen. This could work. And when it doesn't work, you don't get down. You say to yourself, how can I grow from that? And so really the key is a growth mindset. And part of a growth mindset is very simply having gratitude for the hardness of life. 
Uh, you want to get up every, mo every morning and say, life is really, really hard. It's not easy to succeed. And I'm grateful for that because that means I'm going to earn it. As opposed to being someone who thinks, oh, you know, life should be easy. Or if I just get three simple, fast tricks, my life is going to change in an instant. You're just setting yourself up for fragility. And, you know, if you do succeed, you're not going to take that much pleasure in it because you're going to think it was obvious all along. Wow. So there's what you're saying is there's, there's two different types of optimists then. There's, there's agile optimists who are optimistic for the future, but they're also very agile in the, how they get there. And then there's episodic optimists who, you know, they get, they, they, they get optimistic in the moment, but then it doesn't happen. So then they're really episodic optimists are really just pessimists in disguise, right? Because then they're going to run to why, oh, life's hard. And I knew this was never going to work out. And I tried to see every time I try to be positive about something, it never works out for me. And then they wait about three months and they get back in a good mood again. And they're episodically optimistic one more time, right? It's a yo-yo effect. I love that description. And that's completely true. And you see that all the time. I mean, it's almost like an addiction recovery cycle, you know, where people are like, I'm going to change my life. And then they crash and they go up and then they go down. And actually, really, the key to life is just consistency. And, you know, when things go well, you don't want to get overexcited. You want to take pleasure in them and have joy in them. But you don't want to, you know, you know, and, and the same thing when things go bad, you just want to say, well, you know, that's bad luck. And, and this is one of the things that I've really learned from Seligman and I think is really brilliant is, you know, when things go wrong, don't blame someone. Don't blame yourself, don't blame other people, and don't blame life. I mean, most of the time when something goes wrong, the first thing I see is people just try and find out who's responsible, who can I get angry at, who can I get upset at, who can I judge, right? And you're just getting yourself into this kind of negativity, self-defeating cycle. Whereas if you just say, you know what, that was just bad luck, you know? It could have worked. Maybe it should have worked, but I'm just going to try it again. Immediately, you snap out of all those negative emotions. You activate your brain to try again, and you're off and growing. And that's really more the key that I can say than anything else is just don't allow bad things to make you judge yourself or judge others or get angry. And I think if we had a little more of that psychology now today in America, which honestly is, I think, the psychology that kind of birthed America was that resilient psychology, not this anger, blame, you know, judgment kind of psychology. I think we'd all be a lot happier. Yeah, we could go, we could do a whole other episode on uh, social media and the impact of technology on our inability to be optimists, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's go a little even a further a step deeper thing because one of my questions is around creativity, and do you, do you think that people have a, a different differing degrees of that creative gene? And you studied literature, you studied cre really creative geniuses back to Shakespeare and others. Do some people just they're just born with this amazingly imaginative creative gene and they see the world through this multicolored, you know, variation of what's possible and they, they just know how to then articulate it. Or is it something that, is it a skill? Is creativity, is it, a, is it an in, intuitive genetic predisposition or is it a skill that can be trained? Well, it's a skill that can be trained. I mean, it's genetic in the sense that all of us have it in us. Uh, you know, we're all born creative. It is in our genes. There is no single gene for creativity that people are born with or without. But I mean, this is the kind of hardwiring of the human brain. The human brain evolved to be able to innovate in dynamic situations. That's why, I mean, if you look over the last 5,000 years of human history, just think about all the extraordinary things that people across this world have done in so many different areas, whether it's art, whether it's science, whether it's engineering, totally extraordinary. Um, and we all have that in us. And the important thing that my work focuses on is how to train that part of your brain up. And the reason I got involved in this is because we've been noticing for the last 30 years that children have been getting less creative. This has been something that has been tracked by a lot of researchers, not by my lab. I didn't start out with this, but many researchers across the globe have noticed kids are getting less creative. 
And we've been able to figure out why it's because our school system is making them less creative. And so naturally, you know, my team got together and we're like, well, if our school system is making them less creative, one, we should change the school system. And two, maybe we could figure out a better way. And so we've actually started piloting these ways. And, and just over the summer, I mean, I can tell you, we've done two big, big trials, one involving elementary students, which showed a massive increase in creativity. So third, fourth and fifth graders and the other with the U.S. Army, including U.S. Special Operations. And we've done we've done a, a trial involving hundreds and hundreds of senior officers, giving them the same training. And they've also become significantly more creative. So we have the evidence in my lab. You can train yourself to become more creative. It's not magic. Um, and although all of us are creative in different ways and all of us probably do have a different ceiling in terms of creativity, most of us are not realizing our full potential. So what are some of the tips you've been able to help, whether it be the, the, the kids or whether it be the, 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 uh, the military? What are some things you do to help people see that practice being more creative or implement new skills to be creative? So the first thing we do is we just do an attitude adjustment. And we do this with both the third graders and we do this with 18 alphas uh, in the military. And so like the simplest thing is most kids are trained today to think there's a right answer to problems and they get this from school. So you get a multiple choice test and you think there's a right answer here. If you want to be creative, you have to say to yourself, there are many right answers. There is not one right answer. There are many right answers. And what that does is that immediately just kind of opens you to see the space that you have to play with. And in terms of the 18 alphas and the special operations, what we'll often do is we'll often bring them a, we'll bring back a complex problem from the field. So a problem that other Green Berets have encountered uh, that no one else has ever encountered before. And we'll bring that back to the training space and we'll give that to trainee train, uh, Green Berets and we'll see that they can solve that problem in multiple different ways. And watching each other solve that problem in multiple different ways automatically opens up this emotional and attitudinal shift, which is I'm not trying to just find that one answer. I can find lots of answers. And, and we just know that immediately online to all these different areas of the brain opens you up, makes you more empathetic, makes you more curious, makes you less judgmental, makes you less negative, makes you more optimistic, all these kinds of things simply from that shift. Yeah, and I love, uh, I, frequently when I'm doing keynotes, I'll <clears throat> cite the old Dr. George Land study, right, they did for NASA that showed the kids, the astronauts passed this flying colors test and he gave it to four and five-year-olds and 98% of them were creative geniuses at five, but by the time they were adults, it was only 2%. And he attributed the root cause to the same thing, right, the education system, Put, putting kids in the box and make them memorize, regurgitate, pass the test, check the box, and move to the next grade. And then by the time they're adults, we can't figure out why they're not creative anymore. And that's been happening forever. That's the industrial revolution, right? We built the education system off the back of creating widgets. No, this is exactly right. No, and we have to dismantle it because it's harming our kids. It's harming us. And if I'm honest about it, I say this a lot to the RV, and I hope this won't offend any, any, any of your listeners, but it's essentially communism. It's this idea that there's a standard answer for everyone, and we all have to go into this machine and be standardized. And, you know, American democracy was built on the idea that we're all different. We're all individuals. We don't want a system telling us what to do. Uh, we want a system that is flexible enough to allow us all to be our unique selves, because that system is more resilient and dynamic. And, you know, when we are confronted with a challenge, we can draw on all those different ways of thinking to solve it. I mean, that's why special operation teams aren't don't consist of one person who's who's like a robot who's replicated in 13. They're all different. They all have different skills. They all have different training. They all have different backgrounds because as Americans, we believe in these kind of diverse groups that come together and solve these hard problems. 
So you just coined another phrase. We're gonna have to. We're coming up with all kinds of cool stuff on here today, Angus. So you just created creative, creative communism. So if you think that your answer is the only answer, that's creative communism. It's not even really that creative. That's the irony. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I mean, as you'll as you'll quickly discover, the, the one thing that does drive me around the bend is communism. Even though I am myself, you know, not against the Chinese, uh, but the idea that somehow you know we would create a, a culture in which. We're all trying to do the same thing. And I think, you know, AI, computers, all of these things build into this idea that somehow there's a right way, you know, that we all have to be efficient, that we all have to be these things. And, you know, the reality of life is you go out into a forest, there's not like one perfect tree, you know? I mean, you know, world is branching, life is branching, and that branching is resilience, and that branching is strength. And we want to create school systems. We want to create a culture that allows for difference and is not threatened by it. Well, and I don't want to get too far deep into the weeds on the neurochemistry piece of it, as I call it. But I think, you know, when you when you grade kids or humans and you tell them that they're wrong, they're going to have cortisol. They're going to have stress. They're going to have the adrenaline to cortisol. When they feel like they were creative and they were in their mind, their mind's telling them that was right, whether it, there might have been six other answers that were quote unquote right, what do you get? Dopamine. And that, that encourages you to be more creative and, and to stop feeling because the minute someone feels like they don't have the right answer, they're going to shut down. That's exactly right. And even if you get the right answer, right, because of what someone else told you, it's the only answer. Eventually you'll just become a conformist. Yeah. And you, and you start looking to authority to validate your decision. So when we ran these studies on third graders before they came into the training, so we basically gave these third graders the same training that we give 18 alphas in, in special operations. And when, when we first came in, what we do is we gave them hard problems, problems that are hard for a third grader. You know, we're like, your friends want to go to the pool with you and you get to the pool and your friends say, they don't like your swimsuit. What are you going to do? Right. And what we discovered is before the kids had the training, they either responded by giving up. So they would just say, I would go home or I would change my swimsuit or they responded by getting angry. Like they would say, oh, you know, I told them that their swimsuit sucks or I would like fight them <laughs> or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? Um, they, would, they would engage in those kinds of things, you know, um, or they would look to an authority to solve their problems for them. They would go to mom and dad and say, mom and dad, help me solve my problems. And, you know, there's nothing that makes you prouder as a parent when your kids solve their own problems. You know, when your kid, when you, when all of a sudden you look around and your kids have like suddenly done this thing, you know, they fed themselves or they, you know, they've, they've, you know, um, kind of negotiated some conflict, you know, with one of their friends and they've solved it themselves. And what we found is that after we put the kids through this training, that's what they were doing. They weren't looking to authority figures anymore. They weren't looking to teachers and parents because they didn't think there was a right answer. When you think there's a right answer, then what goes on in your head is if I don't know the right answer, then someone else must know what I need to ask them. Right. But if you think in your head there's lots of right answers, then you think to yourself, well, I just got to find them and I can go anywhere to find them. And so, again, this is a, a shifting away from the idea that there's an authority out there that's telling you what to do and instead empowering you to say, no, I can be my own guide. And it's OK for me to do it differently than anyone else, because as long as it works, that's what matters. Boy, we've not had any more of a <clears throat> history lesson on what you're talking about, looking for authority for answers in the last two years, haven't we? Um, right. And there's times yeah. when you do obviously want to listen to someone who's authoritative on a, a specific topic because they're knowledgeable, but we've had very little in the way of creative <laughs> divergent yeah. thinking and how to handle a pandemic, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and what you want in life is to be respectful of expertise without being dependent. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and I think, you know, that's, again, one of the reasons I like working with the U.S. Army is because of that general attitude. I mean, the Army is very open. You can go in there 
with a lot of, but it, but if they try it, it doesn't work. Forget it. They're moving on, right? right. And so, and, and I think that's the way it is with most of us in life. Like we don't want to be beholden to an expert who keeps telling us things that don't work. Then it becomes a cult. Um, at the same time, we don't want to keep reinventing the wheel all the time. You know, I don't want to have to go all, you know, and so I think that kind of balance, and I think, again, that's just a very American balance. And I say this as an immigrant and a naturalized citizen, so I don't say this as someone who's some kind of like, kind of, you know, raving nationalist who was born on American soil. I say that this is what other countries have always admired about America, is the sense that there's this autonomy and this willingness to listen to expertise, but but not be dependent on it. Yeah, it's such a great point. And, and, and to be commonsensical about it, right? So if if I look at how a vehicle works, well, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. That's what the expression is. That's the cliche. Don't reinvent the wheel. The wheel works really well. But if all you're thinking about is the vehicle, then you're not being creative. What's the objective that you're after? Your objective is to move from one place to another. Well, how creatively can you do that? Now I don't need a wheel anymore. So I think that's the idea, right? That's right. And that's what drives innovation is that sense of what am I trying to do? And, and the, the way we often talk about this is the why as opposed to the what's. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, you know, kind of superficial curiosity is the what. So, you know, anytime you're on your phone, your phone's always trying to feed you the what, you know, read this gossip, read this random thing, you know, all this kind of data. But what your phone isn't giving you is the why. And the value of an expert is to give you the why. If an expert can give you a why that you can then take and use in your own life to make your life faster, great. That's what you want. If an expert is just giving you more what's, they're just creating dependence in the same way your phone is creating dependence. And so ultimately for all of us, it's about that seeking that why, why do I need the car? Why does the car have wheels? And once you find that, you can invent more than cars, you can invent anything. Man, that's a good, boy, you're going to challenge me on that one. I'm going to challenge the whole audience. So is the is the place that you're receiving information from regularly today creating dependence or creating curiosity? Is it creating, right, that authoritative dependence or is it creating that divergent curiosity of what's possible and when, why? I bet you so many of us would have to say, you know what, I didn't realize it, but I, I am, I've literally created more dependence in my life than I have channels for creativity. Yeah, and that's that kind of unhealthy dependence that we get on media and, and these kinds of outlets. And it's also, you know, I mean, so I work a lot with sales forces. I work a lot, you know, and, and I find that the kind of like healthy sales relationship is you're trying to find out why someone wants something and what they need and all these kinds of things, as opposed to giving them what, you know, you have, and it's, it, you know, <laughs> right. and it's about having that deep curiosity and really getting to know people that builds those relationships that last and grow. And we find that in all of our lives. I mean, I think, you know, the danger of life is it becomes a kind of short-term transactional thing where it's just give me that what, I'll give you this what, 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 what. Whereas if you get into people's deep motives, their deep why, their deep reasons, and then you're honest. I mean, I think one of the things that people have a hard time nowadays with is being honest about their own whys because they're afraid of being judged. You know, we have gotten away from this idea that it's okay to be different. I mean, you and I probably have lots of different opinions. It doesn't mean that we can't be you know, close friends. Uh, and I think I, I value the fact that my friends have different opinions than I do. I'm not like offended or threatened or freaked out by it. And again, once you can, as a leader or as a manager or as a whatever, be honest about your own why, encourage that honesty from other people, you build those deep connections that allow for real kind of commerce and business to occur, because then it's actually symbiotic and helping both parties, as opposed to being a kind of quick job where you're just trying to give them something and move on, like your phone is trying to push you some stupid algorithm-driven piece of information, right? Um, and then and then move on. Yeah, I think that's the world we live in today, both in personal and professional relationships, is 
we look at everybody through the motive, uh, the lens of the motive of if they believe differently than me on any fill in the blank, then they're going to attempt to convince me that I should believe in something different. Therefore, I must be wrong. Therefore, and it just kind of goes down this cascade of now there's risk resistance and now I don't even care. I don't even want to hear anymore, right? That's right. All the biases kick in, confirmation, blah, blah, blah. We could go on for days for that. Um, Let me ask you this. So you, in our model at Brain Trust, and we're out working with our clients and working with and coaching folks, we have we have storytelling baked into all of our communication processes. You have to have a personal connection story. And if you're in sales, you got to know the prospect story, the problem story before you ever tell a product solution story. Coaching, it's all about, we use the word story a lot. And, and it's almost kind of become cliched a little bit because I think people hear the word story and they immediately think, well, I'm not a storyteller. And they get all like kind of, yeah, uh, they're just they just get a little bit discouraged. T- tell the audience from your perspective what is what is storytelling, and how is it? What we t- and no matter how many times we tell our clients this, there's no one story is the right way to tell it, and no one storyteller has to be like the next storyteller. So, in your experience, demystify for the audience what storytelling really is and how you can do it regardless of your personality style. Well, first of all, I just want to validate everything you just said. That's completely correct. Um, Story is just the way that we normally think. And um, we're all capable of being extraordinary storytellers. I started out, you know, I started out in the sciences. I now work in Hollywood. Um, I now work with the kind of best storytellers in the world. Why? Because I listened (laughs) to other people's stories. I was curious about other people's stories. And that helped me think about different ways to kind of shape and tell my own story. The most important thing uh, when you're telling a story is to make it specific, to make it personal, to make it honest, and to make it revealing. And the most important thing you can do when revealing a story is to tell people your deep motives, your deep why. Be honest with people. This is the hardest thing, I think, a lot of times when people go out into public is they want to please people too quickly. So they're always thinking, what is going to make them happy? As opposed to you have to have this confidence to say, here's why I'm here. Here's how I got here. And I'm going to have the courage to say something that makes me feel slightly uncomfortable in public. The moment you say something that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable in public, you're displaying vulnerability. The moment you display vulnerability, everyone gets curious. The moment people get curious, they get empathetic. This is the simple trick is to say something honest that's hard to admit about your own life. If you get up and do that in public, people will come to you. And, you know, the things that are hardest to admit about ourselves are moments of failure Moments of self-doubt, you know, and these are the hardest things to talk about, honestly. Even when we talk about failure nowadays, we always want to talk about it as the prelude to a success, you know. We always say, well, I struggled, but then I succeeded in these ways. But to actually put yourself back in that moment where you failed. And the moment that you fail, you feel hopeless. And you feel worthless. And to be able to kind of talk about those moments and think about those moments. And, of course, you don't want to necessarily, in every conversation with everyone all the time, start with that. That might be too intense. But... Following that roadmap of I'm going to try and be honest and push as much as I can into other people's motives by being honest about my own. This is what we do again with the the 18 alphas, the Green Beret. So I'm sure that maybe people in your audience don't know what a Green Beret is or what an 18 alpha is. But basically, um, they're known as force multipliers. Their job is to go in, in in small teams over to other parts of the world and build other armies. So a few of them is going to build an army of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. To do that, they have to go into another culture and bond with it. 
they have to basically sell America <laughs> to another country, you know? And, and how do they do that? They do that by being honest about themselves. And we work on that with them. We say, okay, what are hard parts, in your, hard parts of your own life? Model that when you go talk to a tribal leader by being honest about challenges you've had in your own life. He will then start to become more honest with you about challenges he's had in his own life. You can feel the honesty building, then the trust builds, and then the story kind of takes care of itself. I want to I want to revisit that because I think you said a lot of brilliant things today, and I'm sure hopefully people are probably pulling over now taking notes. But I want to I want to capture something you just said. In fact, I got my Apple pencil out. I'm going to literally capture it as we talk. You. And we talk a lot about this and when we teach people how to build and develop their own why story. And I want to make sure I got this cascade right because then you, you, know, you and I are going to, we're going to collaborate on this forever now. So you said vulnerability. You, you're pulling out your little Brene Brown there. I see what you're doing. Vulnerability triggers curiosity, which then leads to empathy, which then creates deep connection. Did I get that right? That's completely correct. And yes, that is from Brene Brown, who, as you probably know, is a friend of mine. Yeah. So she's, we love her. So uh, I'm not, we're going to have her on someday, hopefully on the podcast as well. So I think what, and, and we know this and we teach this all the time, people are, they, they lack the willingness to be vulnerable because everybody in our culture believes it's weakness, right? And we talk about this all the time with all the people we work with. Every keynote I do, if you ask, hey, vulnerability equals the whole audience yells out weakness. When the reality is, is there's nothing, there's there's a confident humility that you demonstrate when you can show vulnerability because you, ha- you lack the fear of judgment if it's from a place of authenticity because you know the vulnerability is leading to someone else's curiosity, which will drive empathy, which will ultimately create a connection that will then allow you to help them. So the whole thing is wrapped up in what's your motive. No, this is exactly right, and that's brilliant. And I want to just double down on what you're saying about how hard it is for people. I mean, you know, when we work with Green Berets, you would think that these are people who are, I mean, a lot of them in their late 20s, early 30s, they're the, the most elite soldiers that the army has. You would think they would have no fear. The moment you start asking them to talk about like their personal vulnerabilities, they completely freak out. You know I mean? They would rather be getting shot at than sort of start to open <laughs> up about things that have happened to them and these kinds of difficult things. And a lot of it involves going back to your own grief, you know, hard things in your own life, uncomfortable, difficult things. But, you know, the key ultimately is you just have to let go of your own ego. And this goes back to what you're talking earlier about how fear and, and self-preservation really is the block that limits people from living their own stories. At the bottom of fear and self-preservation is ego. It's the sense that I am important and I must live rather than saying I'm part of something bigger than myself. I am here for a bigger life. I'm here for other people. I'm here for a larger story. And becoming comfortable with that, we all know what it's like to all of a sudden let go of ourselves and how we feel so much more empowered and we feel so much more open. And, and, and yet it is hard to make that jump. And so that's the jump we work with with the 18 alphas, the same jump we work with with the third and fourth graders. Um, it's even harder for the third and fourth graders because they are scared of being judged by this teacher, like this big adult, you know. But the more we can build a society where we say to people, it's okay not to have an ego. Because you know what? When you let go of your ego, you're going to take care of me, and I'm going to let go of my ego and take care of you. And the more we can build that kind of symbiosis of difference. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with individuals making that choice to do it and create that culture. And all of this, who, who, who would have known we were going to go down this path, right? All this from being a story scientist to then looking at the neuroscience behind all of this. Now, you, you wrote a, a recent book called Wonderworks. Is that your, that's your most recent, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one that came out on Simon & Schuster last year. Yeah, so 
Um, tell us a little bit about that book and then also tell folks a little bit more where they can learn more about you and your work as well. Cause I'm sure tons of people right now are completely interested and fascinated on this at a deeper level. So give us a little bit of a, of a back of the jacket of WonderWorks and some of your other books, if you like, and then where we can go to learn more about you. Yeah. So WonderWorks is what broke me into the mainstream. I mean, it got picked up by JP Morgan and McKinsey and basically it just goes through 25 stories. You can tell yourself to change your performance. If you want to have more curiosity, if you want to have more courage, if you want to have more empathy, these are all the things that I kind of teach to special forces. And the book just goes through the history of literature and explains how the stories came about and a little bit of the neuroscience of of, of why they work. As far as if people are interested in me, I have a website, AngusFletcher.co. I have a business, Just Bloom School in Worthington, Ohio, just down the street from Ohio State. So people can Google that and check it out. Um, and, you know, the main thing is, is that our lab at Ohio State, uh, if there's anyone out there who's, who's an Ohio State fan, we're now regarded as the world's leading lab in this research. We just had an article that came out in the New York Academy of Sciences, now the number two article of all time there. So we are kind of breaking new ground in this area. And if there are people out there who think that story is a cliche or that there are only seven kinds of stories, you know, or that Joseph Campbell knew everything about stories, I want to tell you that, in fact, we are just beginning to learn about story and how it works. And the one thing we know is that there are more stories out there to be discovered, more stories out there to be made, and you can start by making your own. Oh, that's a great way to to wrap this one up. I feel like we should do like three up epi- three part a three episode uh, series on this uh, on this topic. But I think that's the big take home, right? Is the story begins in between your ears, and the one you're telling yourself is going to be the one that not only drives your own purpose, but your purpose on this earth is probably to help influence other people's stories. And until you get the one between your ears right, you're not going to be very effective at helping other people with their story. That's exactly right, Jeff. And that proves that I don't need to come back because you've captured my story perfectly. But anytime you want me, I'm happy to hop on. Well, this has been great. It's been our honor. Uh, we're thrilled. We were thrilled to have you. And anytime we get an expert from the Ohio State University, and I didn't mention earlier that you did spend some time in the wrong state up north, but we won't talk about that, at least not on this episode. But thank you again. This has been great. You're the best. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.